This episode is brought to you by Galactic Fed, the award-winning digital marketing agency that I personally use and whose co-founders have both been interviewed on The Maverick Show, Zach Boyette and Irina Popik. Now, I personally use Galactic Fed for search engine optimization and conversion rate optimization, but they also offer services for email marketing, social media, website design, paid media, and more. They're basically a full-service end-to-end growth marketing solution. And they were founded by two digital nomads as a fully remote company, which now has 150 staff in 27 countries, so they understand remote entrepreneurs. What I love about working with Galactic Fed is, first of all, their team is fun and amazing, and I'm smiling and laughing on pretty much every call that we have, but I also love their scientific approach to growth marketing. They've worked with companies of all sizes and industries, ranging from edible arrangement to PixArt, and they've developed battle-tested digital marketing solutions that produce results that are scalable and repeatable. And Galactic Fed now wants to help you grow your business. They're offering you a completely free marketing plan for your business, which you can get at galacticfed.com. That's galacticfed.com. And if you do decide to work with them, like I do, just mention The Maverick Show and you'll get 10% off your first month of services. To learn more and get your completely free marketing plan, just go to galacticfed.com. That's galacticfed.com. And now here's a clip from what's coming up on today's episode. It was very disheartening when a lot of the media in the States started just kind of bashing China and Wuhan for all of this. And I think that also contributed a lot to the anti-Asian racism that came afterwards. And being in San Francisco, I was more worried for my parents' safety in Texas and knowing how conservative that area was. But then they were also worried about me here in SF because that's where a lot of the early attacks on old Asian elders were. And so around April 2020, once all these pressures kind of start adding up, I couldn't just keep it in my head anymore. Like I needed to express myself, like put it out. I wanted to not only showcase how beautiful my hometown is and like all these wonderful things that people never knew about it just because COVID was all they could think about and like write a love letter to my hometown essentially. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting location-independent entrepreneurs and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Laura Gao. She is a queer artist, author, bread lover, and world traveler, originally from Wuhan, China. Laura immigrated to a small town in Texas when she was four and began her art career by doodling on Pokemon cards and later being featured in the Museum of Chinese in America, NPR, and other major platforms in April 2020 in response to the anti-Asian racism and rampant misinformation about Wuhan. Laura published a webcomic, The Wuhan I Know, 
on Twitter, which received instant virality and attracted attention from several book publishers. The comic inspired her debut graphic memoir, Messy Roots, which was published in March 2022 with HarperCollins and became an instant indie bestseller, garnering critical acclaim from Publishers Weekly and many other outlets. Laura, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. It's so good to have you here. First of all, let's just set the scene and talk about where we are recording this from today. We're not in person, unfortunately. If we were, we'd be sharing a bottle of wine, but we're doing this virtually <laughs> from different time zones. I am actually in Lisbon, Portugal today. And where are you? I'm in San Francisco, California. I love it. Well, I have just finished your book, Laura, Messy Roots, and I will tell you that it has been a really long time since I have purchased a physical copy of a book. I have been a full-time nomad with no base since 2013, and so all of my books are on audiobook or Kindle, but for your book, because it was a graphic memoir, I wanted the physical copy so I could have the full experience with the art, and I am so glad that I did. I have it right here with me. And it is just amazing. I am such a fan of so many things that you did with this book. But I think I want to start this conversation talking about your hometown of Wuhan, China. Mm -hmm. One of the many things that this book did for me was it put Wuhan on my travel list. I have actually not yet been to mainland China. I've spent a bunch of time in Asia. I've been to Hong Kong. I've been to Macau. But I haven't yet planned my trip to mainland China. And when I do, I am definitely going to have Wuhan on that list of places to visit because of your book. And so I thought that would be a really good place to start would be just to give some love to your hometown. Can you share a little bit about your early memories from Wuhan? And then as you've gone back, some of your favorite things about Wuhan and if people were to go and visit, what should they see and do there? Yeah, I absolutely, absolutely love my hometown. Um, I visited multiple times since I've immigrated and my family, half of them live in the city and also the countryside. And so I've gotten to experience all different aspects of Wuhan. And my favorite parts of it are the fact that one, culture-wise and the people, it's quite similar to the Midwest in a way where, you know, before COVID, it definitely wasn't as well known as Beijing, Shanghai, these like really big cities. But because it had its more of a local hometowny in the middle of the country feel, everyone is just extremely nice and constantly wants to show you all the best places, you know, all the great places to get street food, all the places to go out and like have a great nighttime life. And what Wuhan is known for is being in the middle of these multiple giant rivers that cross through it. And so the main one is the Yangtze River and the Changjiang. And that one is snakes through the town. And there are multiple giant bridges that go over it. And at night, the city actually installed this lights display where it coordinated every single skyscraper's lights along that river. And I draw this in my book where they've coordinated to where they play music. And it's like this little like 
rave going on in the middle of like the city, right? On top of this beautiful nightscape of water and stars. So just for that alone, I think people got to check it out. The food, the sights, the nature, just a little bit north above Wuhan, there's this beautiful mountain and a water area called the Three Gorges. And you can take like a little ferry boat down it and you'll just go through this valley on this river with these majestic giant mountains kind of all around you. And so you're able to kind of get it all when you're over there. That's so awesome. Well, I want to go back now and talk a little bit about your story and give folks a little bit of sense of your backstory. You were born in Wuhan and you grew up there as a kid. And then when you were very young, you immigrated to the United States and not just to the U.S., but to the South. And then you settled in Texas. I mean, talk about a cultural transition. Can you share a little bit about, you know, what you remember from Wuhan as a kid growing up from that age and then what you remember about that initial transition and what that was like for you at that age? Yeah, I mean, my, my most vivid memories from back in those early years in Wuhan were me just getting to all these shenanigans with my two cousins in the countryside where my dad's family was. And my dad's family, they're all these like really burly farmers. They take zero crap from anyone. And my grandma, my popo in particular, we were all so scared of her because anytime you did, you got into any trouble, she would like run up with a butcher knife, just like ready. And she would always like yell out that she was going to chop off your ears. That was her like main threat. (laughs) And so that was like one of the memories I kind of put into the book was my cousins and I, we would sneak off and try to climb onto our family water buffalo at the time and like take it down to the river and then whenever my grandma caught us she was chasing after all three of us with her butcher knife and yeah it was like little small moments like that that kind of made you know whenever you're three you don't have wi-fi you definitely don't have a phone right (laughs) you're just out in nature getting wild and muddy that that was the life and then when i immigrated it was definitely a full 180 We originally immigrated to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, because that's where my parents were getting their degree, Louisiana State University. And that was also like a huge transition because over there, there were basically like no other Asian and I didn't know the language either. And I remember as a way of just like getting free daycare, because my parents definitely couldn't afford anyone to take care of us while they were at school. Um, my mom sent me to this like local Bible school and I don't think we were religious then, but she was kind of just like, all right, free childcare, let's do it. <laughs> so I would go not speaking or understanding a single lick of English. Everyone's trying to like recite all these sermons and different Psalms and stuff. And I'm just sitting in the back, just hoping that snack time can come soon. <laughs> I could like leave very soon. So that was definitely a huge culture shock. I remember I couldn't get used to the food. And at one point, I just stopped eating the food, like the American food in the schools that I was in. And at one point, I started losing clumps of hair. And my mom got so worried. She took me to the doctor. And the doctor was like, yeah, your child is malnourished, lady. Like, (laughs) There's something going on. And that's when she realized I was not eating the food at all. So that's when she started packing me lunches. Wow. And then when you think back to that 
age and that period in time, can you talk a little bit about the role of art and graphic novels and comics in your life and how you initially got interested in that? Yeah, I've always said that I could draw before I could ever write. Definitely before I learned English, I was just drawing on things left and right. My grandparents came to the States with us when we emigrated. They had brought over this really cute, traceable, you trace different cartoon animals. And I flipped through that book so many times that I basically ripped every page. And then once I got done with that, my mom found these old Pokemon cards at this garage sale and like brought it over. And I definitely couldn't read them at the time, but just thought they were so cute. And I like draw on top of them as well. And so as I got older and started to learn English, graphic novels were a great way for me to consume something that transcended language. Art is so universal and it's something that can speak to everyone. And I knew that was what spoke to me and I wanted to be part of that too. And then as you got older, can you take us on that journey from your initial landing in Baton Rouge when you were very young through middle school and high school and how that experience was for you? After Baton Rouge, we moved to Texas and we ended up settling down in this small town outside of Dallas. And this place was at the time predominantly white, super Christian. And as someone that not only was one of the few immigrants of color, but very, very much in the closet too. It was such a rough place for me to try to figure out myself because I felt like everything that I was, was going to be put into a box and shoved aside by things that people would say, microaggressions, outright racist things or homophobic things that people then thought was totally okay to say just outright. And I think that contributed to me hiding so much of myself. And art was something I did gravitate towards to try to express these really tough emotions that me at 13 couldn't even put words to. We don't know what it even means to feel so lost and so like hidden at that age. And I just tried to reshape myself to be what I thought other people wanted me to be. I thought that was how you won the game of middle school and high school. (laughs) And it wasn't really until I got out of that town and went to a bigger city for college and was in a much more diverse community to where I realized that I didn't need to change myself. There are people out there that would accept me for who I am. Well, I definitely want to ask if you can go deeper on the college experience because in the book, you share some really powerful and nuanced moments as you are exploring your Asian American identity and your Chinese American identity. For example, there is a moment in the book, there's a scene where you are called a Twinkie by other Asian American students, indicating that you're too culturally white on the inside. And then simultaneously, also, you get confronted in another scene and encouraged to critically reflect on your use of the term FABI, which comes from the acronym FOB or Fresh Off the Boat, to refer to other 
Asian immigrant kids that may not be cool enough in certain ways or whatever it is. And can you share a little bit about that part of the college journey and the reflections that you now have on those experiences? Yeah, yeah. So when I first chose the college I was going to, I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania in Philly. And I specifically chose that because it was the furthest college I got into from (laughs) where I grew up. And that was quite deliberate. I wanted a full blank slate. And I knew that this place could be such a changing moment for me in my search and my identity. But at the same time, I was a byproduct of the environment that I grew up in, right? And so I also had a lot of biases within myself about what it meant to be Asian, what it meant to be white. And I remember in high school, we didn't have many Asians, but within the group of Asians, if you wanted to be cool, you essentially just had to act white because the cool kids were the popular white kids. And it was quite obvious at the time, I definitely was whitewashing myself in order to try to climb the social ladder. And so when I got to college, and that was the first time I had seen so many other Asians like me in just one space. And it really freaked me out from the beginning. Like you'd think I would be so excited to be in this finally like this environment with everyone else. But I had felt so much imposter syndrome around just even being Asian, which is funny to talk about now on the other side. But at the time there were kids who came from like California and New York and school districts in which it was like predominantly Asian. It seemed like they had figured it out. It seemed like they were on a whole different level and that I'm here just trying to play catch up. And I was afraid that if I entered these spaces, would people even think I was Asian enough? Would they accept me? And so that's why in that, in the scene that you were talking about, one of my roommates who's also Asian, she invites me to this Chinese Student Association Lunar New Year party. And at first I was quite hesitant, had been avoiding organizations like that all year. But then finally I was like, okay, I'll go try it out, see what it's like. And then that's when I have that discussion with someone else who seemed like she was quite more firmed in her identity as someone who came from California. And I did end up calling some other Asians I saw there who maybe were like from Asia actually did things that I thought were cringy, you know, wore shirts, misspelled English and stuff like that. And I just kind of regressed back to high school where you're just constantly doggy dog trying to push someone else down so you can go up. And the thing is like, it wasn't even like I was trying to offend them. I think when you grow up in that environment, you just kind of assume that all these things are normal and okay, which is even more sad to really think about. I don't think at the time I knew that that saying Fabi or calling someone Fabi was bad. And so I'm really glad that I got checked there for sure. (laughs) And, you know, that that is the point of college is to meet other different people who will check you. But then at the same time, people did call me a banana or a Twinkie. And then that's kind of doing the same thing as me calling someone Fabi. And so that scene was particularly powerful just because we were all sort of just like trying to figure out who and what we were and also in comparison to each other. And I don't think it was until much later 
where I finally like shed all that and just decided it doesn't matter how twinky I am versus how fobby I am. None of that matters if I'm just going to be authentically myself and decide to just live that. Yeah. And you talk extensively in the book about how college was also a space where you were able to explore your gender identity and your sexual identity and eventually to come out in college. Can you talk about that journey? Yeah. So growing up, I had always had a feeling that something was different in the way that I talked about boys versus all my other girlfriends. And I remember just like having like the biggest heart pumping crushes around other girls that I was with. And I feel like most people who are queer like have this moment. Is it because I want to be her? Is it because I want to like be friends with her? You know, you go through like every single alternative except for the possibility that you actually just like her. (laughs) It's also like growing up in a very conservative, very Christian community. Being in a traditional conservative Chinese family too. There's a lot of homophobia too in traditional Chinese communities. And so thankfully the University of Pennsylvania actually had a really good community for LGBTQ folks. There were a ton of different organizations and clubs and a huge, huge queer population of students. And one of my first friends there, Ivan, who I also wrote into the book, he came out to me as gay just a couple weeks in. And he was the very first openly queer person I'd ever met in my life. And that was like a huge changing point to me too, to like start thinking about maybe this place can actually be a safe place for me to explore. I started off with how I think most people sort of start off is turn your Tinder profile to (laughs) the other (laughs) gender for the very first time, just to kind of see who's out there. (laughs) And I did end up meeting with a few girls and stuff, but It wasn't until sophomore year when I really fell for one of my best friends that had made it then. And unfortunately, I guess a little spoiler in the book is that when I came out to her and told her I liked her, she just really, really flat out kind of both rejected me, but also seemed like she rejected my identity too, because she ended up never talking to me again after that. And that broke me for a very long time. But at the same time, that was the very first time I had ever come out to anyone, including myself. And immediately after Ivan, BFF out there, just kind of let me cry in his dorm room until the morning. And after that, that's when I just looked at myself. I was like, you know what? Now I can finally just say I'm queer and get past that hump and that fear you know, the worst has happened and now I'm just going to live that life. Yeah, that's so nice. There's so many amazing moments in this book and some of them are humorous. Some of them are heartfelt. Some of them are really vulnerable and I'm sure were difficult for you to put out there. But the net result is just that it comes across as so authentic and so earnest and so genuine. And another thing I will say is that the pictures that accompany the story added so much for me because while I could read the text, obviously in just like a regular novel format and understand what's going on and follow it, 
the way that you draw the images and the way that you draw yourself and your own facial expressions at the different moments and all of this, I mean, it just added so much to the book and to the reader's understanding, I think, of you know your journey and what you were feeling at that moment and what you were going through. And it just made it even that much more powerful, I thought. So I really, really loved the graphic part of the memoir as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I also have to say that one of my favorite parts of the book, because I am a basketball fan, was the role of basketball in your life and how that continues to come into play in different parts of the book, including one of my favorite scenes in the entire book, which is later towards the end where you go back to Wuhan and you get into this pickup game in Wuhan with almost all guys in you and they're all underestimating you at the start and then you just start schooling them all which was such an amazing moment in the book for me it was one of my favorite scenes in the entire book so can you share a little bit about the role of basketball in your life yeah yeah i've always had such a like love hate relationship with basketball just cuz this sport is intertwined with so many of the themes that we've talked about so far, like family expectations, what it means to be Chinese versus American, and even queerness and gender. To me, when I first started playing basketball, it was because I had just kind of gotten ridiculed at school for seeming like a nerd that just did math competitions. And I was crying to my parents and telling them, I don't want to do like mathletes anymore. Like I want to be like a real athlete. <laughs> I want to be one of the cool kids. <laughs> At the time, I was like, the cool kids all played sports, dad. Like I need to play a sport. So we picked up basketball and from the very get-go, really loved it, excelled quite a bit at it and got to join the school teams. But it had always been a source of tension between my dad and I, where for my dad, like if you do something to him, like you better be the best at it. And that was his kind of mantra for everything that I had in life. And so later on, when like a lot of pressures started building up as they do when, you know, you're a kid in high school with so many responsibilities and trying to get into college and relationships. And I was also dealing with these like feelings about the girls on my team, like not knowing what that meant, like what to do with that. That was a huge thorn in my relationship with my dad, where I actually ended up quitting basketball towards uh, at the last year of high school because I just couldn't find the same love for it anymore that I had in the beginning. And my dad, that was a source of bonding for us where we would play in the YMCA every summer. And it seemed like he lost a part of me when I quit that. But for me, it ended up being so freeing because the anxiety and the stress of having to perform out on the court was immediately wiped away. And I got to then focus my attention on art and how much that really meant to me. And I didn't really play much afterwards. Like in college, I kind of joined a club team for a little while and that was kind of chill. You know, we didn't really have a coach. It didn't really exactly matter if we won or not. <laughs> it was just 
mainly for fun. But I think the first time that I got to pick it up again and truly play it for the pure joy and love of basketball was when I went back to Wuhan, as you mentioned. And yeah, I was like playing. My cousin invited me to go play basketball with him. And if you're in China, basketball is huge. Like almost every street court, completely packed. People love it there. And it is almost always just like all guys. And so the court near my grandparents' place, it was constantly all guys. And I show up and everyone's just like, oh, you want the girl on your team? Okay, sure. Like, (laughs) yeah. As someone who definitely is fueled a lot by spite and competition, I just took that and ran with it and decided to school everyone. And it was great. Like, towards the end, we all ended up actually becoming friends once they, like, started giving me respect for that, you know? (laughs) Gotta respect the person who's gonna rain threes on you. That was the first time I got to feel that same passion and joy again. Like, I was playing just for me and not for anyone else. That's so awesome. Can you talk a little bit about how your trips back to Wuhan have been over the years and how those have impacted you? My very first trip back, basically a full decade after we immigrated in my teens. And that first time was also such a culture shock, like in the same way that a culture shock was when I first immigrated, because so much about Wuhan had changed. And me having lost a lot of my Chinese, then it felt like I was a stranger in my own like hometown again. You know, that was just a foreigner and like people easily pointed that out just by the way I dressed, talked, walked. At the time, I felt a lot of imposter syndrome again. I wasn't American enough in the U.S., but like now can I even just like call this my hometown anymore? And that first time was quite jarring, but there were a lot of really like awesome, wholesome moments too, where I got to reconnect with my cousins and then we got into shenanigans again. And it felt like we were able to jump back to where we were from when we were riding the water buffalo in the beginning. And after that was when I had more of appreciation for why I wanted to reconnect with my roots. In the book, I talk about how Chinese school was always such a burden and I never paid attention and had zero care for learning Chinese. But then after I came back from Wuhan and then I went to college, it made a lot more sense. And I had a lot more drive to actually start to learn the language so that I can talk to my grandparents and talk to my cousin, start to really appreciate my hometown more. And then I remember right after college and I graduated, I took a trip to Wuhan again. And that was actually the very first time I went there alone. Because my parents, they were dealing with some health stuff. And so I decided to go by myself. And I took that out almost like a boss battle, like a challenge. I no longer have my parents as backup in case something happens. I don't understand anything. Like I need to like put myself to the test. And that ended up being such an amazing time because I improved my Mandarin so much. I got to just fully be present with my cousins and my grandparents and like, not have an easy out for like someone to just like start speaking English with. And I got to just really appreciate it. I think that was the first time that people didn't immediately call me out as like a foreigner too. I speak the Wuhanese dialect and have been from the very beginning. So I'm able to kind of blend in that way. But I got to order food by myself and go explore other cities by myself too. And it felt great to have that freedom. 
Let's talk now about the COVID-19 period in the U.S. 2020. You were based in San Francisco at the time. Can you share a little bit about your experience and your family's experience and what ultimately led you to create the webcomic, The Wuhan I Know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in the States, I don't think people really had reacted to it until around March of 2020. So that was when companies started closing down and such. But I had actually heard about it back in January, like the very beginning, because my mom and I were planning one more trip back to Wuhan then to see my grandma for her 80th birthday. But then right before we had that trip, my uncle, who is quite cautious, and then since my mom also is immunocompromised, he was like, hey, maybe consider canceling the trip because there's just like a little bug going around. You know, nothing too big, but just to <laughs> warn you a little. And at the time, I was actually quite mad that we were going to cancel the trip for something that I thought was just cold going around. Obviously, now we know that it was COVID. And thankfully, we didn't go because the city would have closed the day after we landed and we would have been locked down in Wuhan with everyone. But during that time when everyone else in the States started learning and hearing about it, that's when Wuhan shut down and there was so much pressure and stress on my family thinking about how my grandparents are doing, how my family back in the countryside who like don't really have access to many like medical facilities, like how are they going to deal with this? And it was very disheartening when a lot of the media in the States started just kind of bashing China and Wuhan for all of this and think that also contribute a lot to the anti-Asian racism that came afterwards. And being in San Francisco, I was more worried for my parents' safety in Texas and knowing how conservative that area was. But then they were also worried about me here in SF because that's where a lot of the early attacks on old Asian elders were. And they were warning me, don't go to Chinatown, don't go to like all these Asian places and just trying to like do whatever they thought was practical. And so around April 2020, once all these pressures kind of started adding up, I couldn't just keep it in my head anymore. Like I needed to express myself, like put it out. I wanted to not only showcase how beautiful my hometown is and like all these wonderful things that people never knew about it just because COVID was all they could think about and write a love letter to my hometown essentially but also address that anti-Asian hate because like I had gone through it many times as a kid and for it to happen back up again and like trigger so many of those traumas was something that I needed to share for everyone else that it was triggering to. So that's kind of how the Wuhan I Know webcomic that you mentioned previously came about. And then can you explain just what that was? And then once you put it out into the world, what happened? Yeah, so the Wuhan I Know, it was a short webcomic where I first addressed the anti-Asian racism going on and the misinformation of Wuhan in the media and in public. And then I go into the different beautiful parts about Wuhan, the food, the landmarks, the history and culture. And in the end, I kind of wrote Jiao Wuhan, which means kind of like keep going or you got this as a form of support and love 
to everyone affected out there. And I just kind of posted it on Twitter, which I just assumed maybe five of my coworkers and friends will like it and that'll be it. (laughs) But then little did I know, it just immediately went viral. And I think my comic had come out a day after Trump had made the Wuhan virus tweet. Everyone was picking that up. And then I wrote this as someone who had roots in Wuhan and wanted to bring that other side of the story. And a lot of news outlets started picking up then, including NPR, which I got an interview with. And from that interview then stemmed this whole art journey that I've started on since because my agent who I'm currently signed with, she had heard that interview just like in a car ride and was immediately like, oh, I need to reach out to her. So she emailed me. I knew nothing about publishing then. I was working in a corporate job in tech, (laughs) completely removed. But after talking to her, I realized that like, hey, this is everything I've wanted in life. I wanted to make art and be able to impact people ever since I was a kid. So I can't say no to this opportunity. And so from there, she pitched my comic to publishers and I ended up signing a two book deal with HarperCollins. And that's where Messy Roots, which is the very first book, kind of came out as an offshoot of that. That's so awesome. Well, I also want to talk to you about some of your world travel, including your decision after landing that book deal with HarperCollins to travel the world while you were writing your graphic memoir. And I'm very interested in the impact that that international travel had on your art and your writing. I would love to chat with you about some of the places that you chose to spend a more extended period of time on that journey. And maybe let's just start with Taiwan. I have been to Taiwan for only about four nights, and I spent the entire time in Taipei. It was such an incredible city. I was just like, every night I was out at the night markets. I was just completely blown away by how incredible the city was. But I did not get outside of Taipei. And everyone's been telling me I need to see all these other parts of the island. But I know that you did get outside of Taipei. You spent time both in the city as well as some of these other places. And I would love to hear about how Taiwan was for you. Yeah. So I did spend most of my time in Taipei where that's where I lived for the most part, but I did get to explore most of the rest of the island. And to this day, Taiwan is like one of my top places to live in and to travel to all the time. It's like the appeal of this island country with like such beautiful nature and amazing food. And also you have the main capital of Taipei, which is this bustling metropolis to where if you wanted nightlife and you wanted to meet all these different kinds of people also from a bunch of different countries too, if you really could. And so Taiwan was perfect for me to kind of do the second half of my book in, as well as be able to improve my Mandarin and kind of reconnect with roots again and just like appreciate everything that was there for for nomadic living. One of the best things that I did in Taiwan, which I highly recommend anyone who stays an extended period in Taiwan to do, is their coastal ride around the island. They have this famous ride called Huandao, 
which basically is a bike tour around the entire island. I didn't do the full thing because the full thing, I think, would be around two weeks or so, 10 days to two weeks. But I did the northern and eastern half, which personally, I think that is the more scenic half as well. So the northern half is you're along the coast and these beautiful mountains, lush forest kind of all around you and you can stop anywhere you want to do some surfing to do some hiking to eat fruit with locals and chat with them and then the eastern half is quite similar too but I rode in the inland and then the inland you're just riding through miles and miles of rice paddies and and fruit farms and you're passing through these very small villages of 50 to 100 people. And these people are so nice. They'll see you, know that you're just like in town and they kind of bring you in, try to like feed you everything like an old like Asian grandmother would. I had the best time exploring on bike through all of Taiwan. So awesome. Well, I know another place that you have spent a bunch of time is the place that I am in right now, mm-hmm. Portugal. Yeah. How was your experience in Portugal? Oh, man, I loved Portugal, too. I think in the beginning, there was a little bit of a culture shock for me coming from Taiwan because it came from this place where it was predominantly Asian, Taiwanese, people who looked like me, spoke my same language. And then I go to Portugal and it is predominantly European. So that was quite a change. The food was very different from what I expected. And at first it took me a while to like really get my bearings. But then once I started connecting with a lot of the international like nomadic community there, which is quite large there's a ton of nomads a lot of like co-living spaces like co-working spaces I visited and started making community there that's when I really appreciated it and Lisbon was one of the places that I got to live alone for the first time as well and at first I was kind of scared because I really hadn't lived alone since college like I'd always had a roommate or a friend but when I was in Lisbon I decided to kind of take advantage of that, which I really needed because I just got out of this relationship in which it felt like it took a lot of me away. And I need to like regain that part of myself. And so I took day trips alone to like Centra and other cities. And I told myself I would try to like meet at least one stranger in every place I went to and say yes to any adventure that comes through. And that ended up being so rewarding. I did stuff like on Centra, I climbed up the mountain to reach this like castle at the top and to watch the sunset. Ended up watching it with this like group of Indian men from Germany. And I didn't know who any of them were, but we all appreciated the sunset so much. And at the end, I was like, oh, crap, it's like pitch dark now. And I have no clue how to get down this mountain. And then they're like, oh, you can just join us. Like we were just going to like catch a ride from one of the buggies. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So then we go, but then all the buggies were full. But then they were like, oh, here's this like open faced Jeep. It's a little dangerous, but just like hold on for life and we'll get you down there. <laughs> it's 
so here I am with this like, group of strangers, like going Mission Impossible style down this mountain, trying to make sure we don't get thrown off this Jeep as it makes these drastic turns down the mountain. But it ended up being like so amazing. And then I introduced them to like some of my favorite Asian food in Lisbon when, when they're visiting. And yeah, everything was just like so great. Like visit the Azores Islands, which I highly recommend if you haven't been or like any folks currently in Portugal. And I remember there I was on a hike and then halfway through just like came across this old man who looked like he was tying something up against a tree. And I was like, oh, like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm just like going to raffle down this mountain. And he just casually was like, you want to join me? Normally, I probably would be like, oh, no. But then I was like, oh, wait. I have to say yes. And then sell. Okay, why not? Let's do it. It ended up being such a fun process. He just taught me within like an hour. And then we raffled down and got to kind of raffle close to this waterfall, which otherwise wouldn't have been able to see so up close if I hadn't taken that with Joao over there. So that was a hella rewarding experience. That's so amazing. So when you think back on all of your travels and particularly the style in which you chose to travel and the adventures that you chose to say yes to and the people that you met and the experiences that you had as a result of all of that, what impact do you think all of that travel has had on you? First and foremost, I think it's really just made me so much more confident as a person in this world kind of knowing that I can make any place my home, knowing that I don't have to own anything or be tied to any material possessions. I just travel around with two suitcases and I'm able to find a community anywhere. I'm able to make friends anywhere. It's stuff like that that ends up being so freeing where if I was just only in one place for a whole time, it can be easy to feel like you have so many things that are preventing you from living your best life. But now I've realized that with enough trust in people around me and so enough guts to just say yes to these things, I can chase down what my like heart desires without having to second guess it. So awesome. And at this point in your life, Laura, how do you think about the concept of home? Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you? And how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that is the core theme of my book, too. As someone who is an immigrant and has traveled around and hopped around to so many different places, even post-immigrating, home had never been a concrete idea for me. When people say, what is home? I feel like so many people like imagine like a specific place or a person. And to me, it's just all these different memories and beautiful moments that I've had. And so I always say that home is kind of just where I make it now. You know, home is a combination of all these different memories from these different journeys I have made and that I will make in the future too. So awesome. Well, I also want to ask you about your creative process, including how you think all of this travel has impacted your creative process. Yeah, my creative process, at least for Messy Roots, that took about two years from beginning to end. 
to make. And I typically start off with the writing where I write a script, go back and forth with my editor about it, about six months or so. And the last a year and a half is spent on the drawing. And travel has made me be able to collect all these different vibrant memories and, you know, inspiration that keeps me going with art where anyone who's a creative, it is exciting to make these things. But once you're looking at the same panel that you've drawn like 20 different times for over 10 weeks, you just don't want to see it ever again. You know, I'm just like, oh, like kill me before I have to like redraw this panel again. But the thing about travel is like it, kind of refreshes your mind, refreshes your focus on life too. And even though like the book was the main focus, it kind of leveled my perspective in being like, hey, don't put too much pressure on getting everything perfect. Because at the end of the day, yes, you're an artist and a writer, but you're like first and foremost, just this person of this world. And it just so happens that you're like making a book. So that kind of helped me get out of my head whenever I got too like perfectionist about what I was doing. I love it. Well, the book came out in March of 2022, and you have been on a book tour interacting with fans and readers. And I wanted to ask you, as you were writing this book, who was the primary audience that you had in mind that you were writing this book for initially? And then as you have traveled around and you have now met your readers and your fans and you've gotten feedback, what type of feedback have you been getting on the book? Yeah, when I was first writing it, I had envisioned younger Laura teenage me who was so lost and so angsty (laughs) and so insecure about everything, needing some book to tell her that it will be okay. She will find her way. And I know that so many other teenagers at the time needed that too. And so that was who I envisioned when I wrote it. And even though this book is marketed as YA for young adults, as I have gone on this book tour to like so many different cities, I realized that Kids as young as early middle school, all the way to adults well in their 50s and 60s have all really, really enjoyed the book. Yeah, and so many people got to relate to these concepts just because they're so universal. You know, the idea of belonging, the idea of wondering what is home whenever home is so messy. And I think some of my favorite interactions have been, I remember Coppell is a small town I grew up in. The library invited me to do a talk there. And at first I was like super shocked. Oh my gosh. I didn't know they like ever wanted me back. <laughs> I just exposed this town for being racist and homophobic and that they actually want to invite me to talk about that. But the librarian actually just thought that it was so impactful and she had heard so many good things about the kids who checked it out. So she invited me. And then so many teens from my alma mater, Coppell High School, came And it was so special because these were teens. Some of them were starting to come out. Some of them were also like Asian, trying to figure out themselves. And I could just see myself inside these kids. And then some of them also had their parents come and their parents were like, yeah, read your book. And we wish that we had this earlier so that we could understand what our kids were going through when when they were your age too. And that was something I like didn't intend originally like I had never thought that 
parents would get so much out of this book too. But then as I thought about it, it made sense. I was like, oh yeah, I do write a lot about my own dynamics with my parents and how complicated that was. So I guess it is really cool. Now other parents are trying to use it to figure out their relationship with their kids. Yeah, I agree. I think it's super important for parents to read this book. I think it's super important for everybody to read this book. Laura, let me ask you one more question before we wrap this up and move into the lightning round. What is next for you? What upcoming projects do you have that we can look forward to? Yeah, I am currently writing and drafting my second book, also with HarperCollins. Can't say too much about it besides the fact that it will be another graphic novel geared towards young adults as well. And hopefully will come out in the next couple of years. Amazing. Well, I want you to let folks know where they can get the book. And by the way, folks, definitely buy the physical copy of the book. The art is freaking amazing. Laura, where do you want people to go to get a copy of this book? They can go most anywhere. It is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I always try to push people to support local bookstores too. So if you are unsure if your local indie store has it, you can go to indiebound.com or bookshop.org. They both are indie bookstore databases. And if you just type in Messy Roots, it'll let you know which stores near you have it. Awesome. We are going to link that up in the show notes. So folks can just go to one place at the maverickshow.com and we will have the link right there. And at this point, Laura, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Let's do it. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years that you would definitely recommend people should check out? I would say there's a book I read quite recently and also only came out last year or so and was recently nominated for Eisner, which is based on the top award for comics and graphic novels. It's called The Many Deaths of Lila Star by Ram V and illustrated by Felipe Andrade. And this book is a quick read, no more than 200 pages, but the premise is so unique. It's essentially the god of death is told by kind of like the god of the universe that she's fired from her job because the person who's going to invent immortality was just born so like they don't need her anymore and then so she gets sent to the mortal world which is earth because she just lost her job and be like well like i guess you can live it out as a human for the rest of your life and then so she decides to use that opportunity to then go search out this like baby that's going to be immortality and try to essentially kill that baby, right? To get her job back. But every time she tries to do that, she learns more and more about what it means to be human. What does death and mortality and living, having relationships and having people live through someone despite their death? What does that all mean? It's just like such a, such an interesting look at these big nebulous topics and done in such a creative way. And the art is absolutely like to die for. Like also another book you should get physically because of how gorgeous art is. All right. What is one travel hack that you use that you can recommend to people? If you are ever 
worried about being in a country alone and by yourself, join a co-living space, even just for like a week or a month. I've been in so many share houses and that's where I make all my local friends and they teach me everything about how to live in that country, essentially. And it's amazing. All right, Laura, if you could have dinner with any one person that's currently alive today that you've never met, who would you choose? I've always really admired creative masterminds. And I think one of the people I would just love to like see that their genius is probably Donald Glover. It's like music, comedy, writing, acting, everything. It's impressive to see someone excel in so many different aspects. So yeah, I think that would be really cool. All right. Knowing everything that you know now, if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Laura? Oh, I think 18-year-old Laura would be so angsty and rebellious that she would not listen to anything that I say. (laughs) She would do the exact opposite of what I tell her for sure. (laughs) But knowing 18-year-old Laura is about to go to college, I would tell her to live it how she wants. I don't think I would change anything about the way that I went through college, despite all the ups and downs that happened. I think those were quite necessary for me to get to where I am today. Awesome. All right. Of all the places you have now traveled, what are your top three favorite travel destinations you would most recommend other people should check out? Well, obviously, like selfishly, Wuhan, <laughs> for sure. Represent. Yeah, yeah, I got to. I got to. I'd also choose Kyoto. Kyoto is by far my favorite place in Japan. Just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, all the art and culture and fashion and nature. And then in Taiwan, Taipei is like the easy go-to answer, but like a bit lesser known place that I really appreciated is Yilan. And that's Y-I-L-A-N. And Yilan, if you can, I recommend trying to stay up in one of the monasteries on top of the mountain, or there's also a little like some art residencies at the top of the mountains there. And it's just absolutely gorgeous, kind of hidden in like a more countryside area. It just luscious, luscious mountains and tea farms and coalside and the stars at night are to die for. So an amazing retreat area. All right, Laura, last question. What are your top three bucket list destinations? These are places you've never been highest on your list you'd most love to see. Mm. I want to check out Hokkaido in Japan. I want to see Switzerland because I've only heard amazing things about it and how beautiful it is. So that is up there. And then last one. This isn't like one particular place, but I'm a sucker for really, really scenic train rides. So I've always wanted to take the Trans-Siberian one that ran across Russia and Mongolia. I think that would just be <laughs> such a dream come true. Just sit there, do art, and like watch the landscape change as I rode. So I just did the Trans-Siberian Railway in 2019. Oh, yeah? How was that? It was unbelievable. I highly recommend it. We started in Moscow 
and went all the way across Siberia. We went out to Lake Baikal, and then we went down into Mongolia, and we ended in Ulaanbaatar. There's a couple different routes you can take. There's one that goes all the way across Russia and ends in Vladivostok, but we took the Trans-Mongolian route, which goes down through Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia, and then you can, if you want, even continue on and go all the way to Beijing. So it was absolutely incredible. And then the other one that you mentioned, Switzerland, is also an incredible train experience. It has some of the most beautiful and scenic train rides in the world. And you can get a three-day rail pass, which I did. And I literally just sat on the train for three full days and just rode around Switzerland. And they have just incredible train rides. The one that I would put probably top of your list, which is widely regarded as the single most scenic, beautiful train ride in the world is in Switzerland. It's called the Glacier Express. Oh, okay. It is an eight-hour express train that goes from Saint-Maurice to Zermatt right through the Swiss Alps, and the scenery is just insane. So I think you have picked out a couple really incredible train rides. Yeah, yeah. That's a great Rex. I'm going to put him down for sure. I know my brother wanted to hit up Switzerland after his summer internship. So I'll let you know if we end up doing the Glacier one. Well, now that I've read your book, I feel like I know your brother as well because of how extensively you featured him in the book. So definitely keep me posted and feel free to reach out anytime for travel tips. Laura, this has been so special. I think you are amazing. I am such a big fan of your work. And at this point, I want you to let folks know how they can find you, how they can follow you on social media, how they can learn about what you are up to. How do you want folks to come into your world? Yeah, Matt. I mean, once again, thank you so much again for doing this and having me on the show. It's been such a blast just kind of talking with you. Folks can find me on all socials uh, at hey, and then my name, Laura Gal. And then my website is lauragal.com. And if you need to contact me, you can do that through my website as well. Amazing. We are going to link all of that up in the show notes. So you can just go to one place at the maverickshow.com. Go to the show notes for this episode and there you will find the links to Laura's book, to her website, and all of the other things that we talked about in this episode. Laura, this was amazing. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you as well. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks and you can get your first one for free. 
at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.